If you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Philippians chapter 2 and verses 14 through 18. Here Paul writes, Do all things without murmurings and questionings, that ye may become blameless and harmless, <coughs> children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom ye are seen as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may have whereof to glory in the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain, neither labor in vain. Yea, and if I am offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all, and in the same manner do ye also joy and rejoice with me. A young child was repeatedly admonished by one of his parents to sit down. Finally, he complied, fearing the certain punishment that would follow if he did not obey his or her parent. And as he did so, he said this, on the outside, I may be sitting down, but on the inside, I'm standing up. You probably heard that illustration before. In fact, I may well have used it. Outside, there was compliance, but on the inside, there was full out, shall we say, defiance against the parent. And it tells us or reminds us that obedience may be of two kinds. There may be grudging obedience as with that child and perhaps even as we grow older in other contexts or voluntary compliance and compliance from the heart. He may have complied but he was not obedient. And it tells us and reminds us that true faith is never merely external compliance. It's internal. And this has particular relevance in the context of these few verses, verses 14 through 18. Paul urges his readers to continue to work out their salvation, which is what he has said and what we noted last week, to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. And he does not tell them to work for their salvation, or in that sense to work, well, for it, but rather to continue to work out the implications of their salvation, to bring to expression what already exists, what already they possess. And so we were reminded last week that work is essential to the Christian faith, to the Christian life. There's work to do at multiple levels, continually, precisely because of what God 
requires of us and because of what God has done for us and is presently continuing to do in us. All of that is to say that God has a claim upon your life. As one writer has said, since he is doing all, we must give our all. And so in working out your salvation, working out the implications of what you already possess, you must do all things, as Paul says in verse 14, do all things. That is all of the things that he's been talking about and will continue to talk about. Do all things that you meet in the path of the Christian life and Christian duty. Everything is to be done, but everything is to be done differently. Not just external compliance, which may well be, to to some degree, defiance, but internally and from the heart. The point is, you are essentially different from what you once were. You are the children of God, Paul says that in verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You are a child of God. And children are to take on the character of their parents. And ultimately, they do so. You ever, as we get older, have you ever had the thought, you know, my father and I or my mother and I, we struggled. Now I find out I'm just like them. Well, that's what Paul's getting at here, except in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense, you are to take on the character of a new person. And in fact, even more than that, and previously, Jesus is also your model. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And so, what we're looking at here. And what we're hoping for, and our goal is not a grudging obedience, I don't have any choice, but a willing obedience, and at multiple levels. And we see those multiple levels here in verses 14 through 18. First of all, in verses 14 and the first part of verse 15, You are to be essentially different in the character that you possess. Remember, we said all along here that it's not just, not only a grudging obedience, but something that is merely external. You are to take on a different character. That you become, that you do all things without murmuring and questioning, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God 
without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so what are, what are some of the elements of this new character that you are to possess? And in fact, if you're a Christian, you actually do possess. Well, first of all, humility. Paul says we're to do all things without murmuring and questioning, without complaining, without arguing and debating. The first word, without murmuring, was used to describe Israel complaining to God in the wilderness. They murmured against God and what he had called them to do. Complaining to God in the wilderness. Nothing was right. No food, for example, and then food that they didn't like. Murmuring. The second word used here means to dispute or to argue. It's the word from which we get our word dialogue. We don't dialogue with God, debate with what he has called us to do, to be discontent, questioning, arguing with God in unbelief as to what he has called us to be. There will be days when his providence is not to your liking. There are commands in the scriptures which undoubtedly are not to your liking. And yet is not this what God has provided for you? And is not this what God has commanded you? How do you respond to his providence and to the commands of his word. And so Paul says that being the children of God require of us not to murmur or to argue and to debate. Like a small child, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do this? Well, the answer is sometimes because I said so. In a sense, that's what God does, does he not? Because I said so. There are good reasons for it as well, of course, but we don't argue and debate. Matthew Henry wrote, God's commands were given to be obeyed, not to be disputed. The light of truth and the light of true religion are often lost in the heats and the mists of disputation. I don't think that was original with me. The, old, the notes are rather old and I don't have quotation marks around it, but I don't think I could say anything quite that good. So again, the light of truth and the light of true religion are often lost in the heats and the mists of disputation. Arguing with God about his commands, or even more than that, or beyond that, arguing with him about the truthfulness of his word. Murmuring and complaining, murmuring and arguing, or complaining and arguing, will hinder the development of the character 
that follows. And so an element of that character which we are to possess is humility. And then the second is what we might call integrity. Paul speaks of being blameless. And here what he has in mind in the judgment of others, living out our lives before the face or the presence of God will have an effect upon how others view us. We give the world no ground for criticism, or at least that's the goal. And certainly Paul, or Paul mentions that in terms of um, officer characteristics in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But here Paul says that that's the sort of life we ought to be living as well. Humility, integrity, giving the world around us no, cla- no cause to wave their finger at us, or at least no legitimate cause to do so. And then Paul speaks of purity. Literally, the word is unmixed. And it's a word that was used for wine that perhaps had been watered down to make it go further, or metals that are mixed with an alloy. Harmless, unadulterated, unalloyed, all of one piece. And when you look within, what do you see? A person of one piece? Something of inner spiritual nature. And then fourthly, Sincerity, harmless without fault. It was used frequently in the Old Testament in connection with sacrificial animals, spotless, perfect, fit to be presented to God. Simplicity, sincerity as the children of God. Matthew Henry puts it well when he says, the children of God should differ in character from the sons of men. Again, notice that the qualities that are mentioned here are largely internal qualities. Character. And so Paul tells his readers that they are to be And he's telling us essentially different in the character possessed. Secondly, you are to be essentially different in the conduct you display. You become blameless and harmless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom ye are seen as lights in the world. 
Paul addresses not only the matter of internal character, but also external conduct that we display. Where is it that we live out this new character, blameless, harmless, humble, and so forth, in the midst of a generation that is altogether different than that, in a crooked and depraved generation, right in the middle, not on the outskirts, but right in the middle of that kind of a generation. And I don't have to illustrate that, I don't think. All I have to do is look around and see the kind of world in which we find ourselves. There's no escape from this kind of world. There's no retreat. There's no hiding place. There's nowhere to go. Becoming a a monk or a nun is not an option. Can't hide ourselves away. This is where we live. And this word crooked is the word from which we get our word scoliosis, um, a curved spine, an unnatural curvature of the spine. The world in which we live is unnatural. That is, if you look at it from God's perspective. A twisting of the truth or a turning of the truth resulting in something that is out of shape and crooked. A crooked and perverse or depraved, distorted generation. Paul is saying that you must prove yourselves to be or approve yourselves children of God in that particular kind of environment. There's a striking contrast between the life and the character and the conduct of the Christian and the world in which he or she lives. You cannot be and must not be, and in a sense you are not the same in your thinking or your behavior. To be the same is to betray your calling as a Christian. All too often, people attempt to influence others by so thoroughly identifying with them that you cannot tell the difference between the two. There are those who who so identify with the world, with this perverse and crooked generation, by demonstrating or trying to demonstrate to them how much they really are like them. That's a mistake. And it violates this text. 
to try to blend in will always end in disaster. We're called to be different. And it is, is it not possible that we lose a tremendous amount by the process, the unthinking process perhaps of assimilation with the world in which we live. Where true faith is absent, little can be expected but crookedness and perversity. And so where, what's the environment, what's the context in which this new life is lived out? Well, in this crooked and perverse generation. What is our conduct to look like? Paul says that we are shine, we shine or we are seen as lights in the world, luminaries in the heavens, like stars reflecting the light of the sun. Again, Matthew Henry writes, where God raises up a good man in any place, he sets up a light in that place. And so even our conduct and our conversation ought to challenge the world in which we live, a world that is marked by crookedness and depravity. So you are to be essentially different in your character. You are to be essentially different in your conduct. And you are to be essentially different in the cause that you promote. Paul speaks of holding forth the word of life that I may have, and we'll come back to this, whereof to glory in the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 16 tells us that this word that Paul is talking about is about life. Now, we might not think too long and hard about that, but we really ought to. Because the world in which we live and the character which we came into the world with and how we lived out our lives before we became believers was marked by death. You know, Paul says that elsewhere, you, has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins. This word that we believe, this word that we have received, tells us about life. Sin is the cause of, of evil in the world, and the only remedy is the remedy that God himself affords us. And any view of life which does not include these features about life is false. This word of life, verse 16, 
is a word that tells us about life. It is a word that gives life. The gospel has the power to bring life to those who are dead and does bring life to those who were dead. This word supports or sustains life. Gives life, tells us about life. Sustains life once we have it. This is a word that that tells us how to live. And all of that is all about life. This word stimulates a life which has the approval of Christ. Paul gives himself to the, to the cause of the gospel because it's the only word that has and, and that brings life. And he gives himself to this word of life knowing that in doing so, he has the approval of Christ. You notice that in verse 16. Think of that. The peerless Savior, the perfect Son of God, without sin, approves something. And it approves, or he approves, us proclaiming and living out this word of life. And so Paul is calling upon us, the readers of this epistle and the hearers, if they heard it read to them for the very first time, to hold on to this word of life. And how easy it is to see it slip away. because of the influence of the world, because of the influence of false philosophies and false teachings and all of the rest. Paul says, hold on to it. Don't let it go. It's too large a cost, too great a cost to lose this word of life. Hold on to this word of life and hold out this word of life. That is, hold it out to others who are still in their sins. It is this word that brings life. There's no other word that brings life. And therefore, if you long to see people come to live, you must hold out. But you can't hold it out unless you hold on to it. And so I think Paul is telling us two things here. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Regardless of the cost, don't let it go and then hold it out to those who are around you, to your family, to your friends, to those you work with, to your neighbors. 
hold on to it in that context, remember, which is the context of a crooked and perverse generation, hold on to it in that environment and then hold it out to others. And then fourthly, we discover from the context that you are to be essentially different with regard to the certainty you project to others. Now, perhaps that's too complicated a sentence. What Paul is saying is that you are to be essentially different in your hope, in your understanding of the future. And he says several things here. First of all, the future is not grim or hopeless. Paul has a great hope. Paul doesn't know what awaits him. Remember, Paul is, is in a Roman prison. And he's not sure whether he'll, his life will end there or will he be released and, and rejoin them. He just doesn't know. And so you can imagine him sitting in this cold, dark, dank prison cell and uh, the grimness of his situation lays hold of him and he becomes depressed. Paul may even die. But what he anticipates is the approval of Christ and what he anticipates is more than what temporarily he may face. The point is Paul is not short-sighted. Paul doesn't merely look for, the, for immediate relief. He doesn't have a morbid view of life or an overly exalted view of what the future might bring. Now let me apply it this way. This is an election year. What are your hopes? And does the hope for a coming election override that biblical hope that you have for a future with Christ and the approval of Christ. The future is uncertain, and if we pin all of our hopes on what's going to happen in the next few months, not only may we well be disappointed but the, the point is, it's not the end of the day or the end of the world. Paul lived in a context of incredible oppression from the current government. And I'm not suggesting that's not the application I'm trying to make. The only application I'm trying to make is, don't pin your hopes on present or immediate futures and lose sight of gospel hope. Don't be short-sighted, looking merely for 
immediate relief. Paul has no morbid view of life or overly exalted view as he faces the future. You're to be essentially different in a number of areas, character, conduct, so forth. But also in the certainty of the hope that you possess. Doesn't mean that we need to be or can be or should be indifferent today, tomorrow, or the next few months. But don't pin your hopes on what may or may not happen. Because secondly, not only the future is for Paul not grim or hopeless, nor is he overly excited, but secondly, the great thing that matters is the work of God in the world. And I think American Christians have largely forgotten this. Again, in um, becoming overly excited one way or the other about political matters. The greatest thing in the world is not what happens in the next few months, but the work of God, the work of the gospel in the world. The work of God in the hearts of men. Do you believe, promote, and project that Paul did? He was satisfied if he could contribute something to the advancement of the gospel. And he saw, interestingly enough, his contribution as being exceedingly small. If Paul's contribution was small, I hate to think of what my contribution might be, uh, how that might be viewed. Paul was a giant. But he saw his contribution as something small. His labors were not the major sacrifice, because he uses illustrations of Old Testament sacrifice here. His labors were not the sacrifice, but the minor drink offering that was poured out at the base of the offerings. He calls his efforts puny, yet they were an offering to God. And so Paul is saying there's nothing more important, even if we feel our contributions are small and puny, nothing is more important than the advancement of the gospel and the welfare of the church. That's where our sympathies ought to lie and our endeavors ought to um, be placed. So the future is not grim or hopeless. The great thing that matters is the work of God in the world. And thirdly, there is no greater joy, Paul tells us, than the joy of, the spiritual, of spiritual prosperity in the church. Isn't that what he says here? Yea, and if I am offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all, and in the same manner do ye also joy and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, your joy is the same as mine. 
There is no greater joy where you ought to have a sense of of no greater joy than to promote the honor of Jesus Christ, the edification of the church, and the welfare of the souls of men. And that's a paraphrase of Matthew Henry. Paul poured out his life for this work. How could we conclude that we've done as much as we need or can when we compare our smaller efforts? And so there you have a list of four things in which Paul tells his readers that they are and are to be essentially different from the world in which they live. And so the text prompts us to ask ourselves that question. Are we essentially different? Or have we become indifferent to these matters? And if you are different, are you different for the right reason or are you just peculiar? And I realize this is going out over the internet, so that those are the people I have in mind, not you, okay? <clears throat> and if you're listening over the internet, I don't have you in mind either. It's something to say and it's an important to say. How different are you, and in what way are you different? Some of God's people are just peculiar, strange. That's not what Paul's talking about. But are you different in your character, your conduct, the cause that you promote, and the hope that you profess? Are you different on the inside or just on the outside because that's what's Expect it. Remember that you will only be different if you believe and cleave to the gospel. There is no hope of change. There's no hope of becoming like this and possessing the approval of Christ without the gospel. Or to put it differently and to put it in um, in the context of a, pre- a previous sermon, you cannot work out what you do not possess. If you do not possess it, you cannot work it out. And you certainly can't work for it and secure it. That's what Christ has done. You cannot do all things in a manner which pleases God, as we discover here, without the grace of God. And may God's grace be poured out even upon this small congregation to the glory of God, to the blessing of God's people, to the advancement of his cause. May God help us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text and for this list of characteristics and qualities that we are to possess. And we pray that we may do, or that we may possess them as we seek to work out our salvation in fear and trembling before you. 
May these things become and be true of us, even as Paul longed for it to be true for the Philippian Christians and for himself. Help us to meditate, perhaps even later this day, on these few verses. And uh, may we pray that they do indeed become a reality. And if there are those within the sound of my voice who have not come to Christ, pray, O God, that you might draw them, that they might come to believe this light of life, the gospel of salvation. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.